Let the festivities begin with a third off our wonderful range of artificial trees and Christmas lights. Homebase feels good to be home. Terms at homebase.co.uk. Let the festivities begin with a third off our wonderful range of artificial trees and Christmas lights. Homebase feels good to be home. Terms at homebase.co.uk. There are never enough hours in the day, especially at this time of year when nights grow long and to-do lists even longer. Perhaps the greatest gift you could give this year is time. Not time to do, but time to be. Those are the moments Mojave's are made for. So let someone special slide into our 100% wall-lined footwear and away from the fray and the fuss. Visit mojave's.com to browse our beautifully crafted range of slippers and give the gift of time well spent. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. When the city of Philadelphia announced they were adopting a rainbow flag that included black and brown stripes, they ignited a global debate. Many of us finally felt seen. Others felt the international symbol of pride had somehow been ruined. But the adoption of the flag is the result of what my guest today calls a 30-year conversation. Amber Hikes is the executive director of the Mayor's Office of LGBT Affairs for the city of Philadelphia, and she leads the team that initiated the move to a more inclusive flag. She says the eight-stripe flag is a way of demonstrating the city's commitment to tackling inequality, discrimination, and racism within the LGBTQ community. At the mayor's office for a city that is 44% black, Amber fights for the most vulnerable populations across the city, from advocating for anti-discrimination legislation at the municipal level to the launch of a citywide LGBTQ community conversations initiative. She helps facilitate local and international conversations about race, discrimination, and intersectionality. Amber is seriously impressive, and our conversation stretches across the span of her life to understand more about what makes the woman behind the activist tick. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being Black with Amber Hikes. Amber mm. Hikes, the Amber Hikes. <laughs> I am so honored to be sitting across from you, and I just want to say thank you so much for being here. Thank you. The honor is mutual. I think I squealed when I when I saw you. I was very, <laughs> very excited to be here. Um, I, I want to start at the beginning. Um, okay. I, in my in the course of my research for this conversation, um, I, I found out that you were born in Japan. That's so exactly right. Talk to me about how you came to be born in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> it's not nearly as exciting as it sounds, but um, but I am a, a military brat. My dad was in the Air Force, and so he was stationed in Okinawa. And I was there from birth until three. And then after that, we bounced around quite a bit. You know, mm-hmm. Hawaii, Louisiana, Atlanta, Delaware. Um, yeah, we were all over the place. You know, my dad was in the military, but we always felt like he never took any of the good assignments. You know, he never... <laughs> oh, no. Where, where were we, you we all We wanted stationed? Hawaii. We wanted Guam. <laughs> but we got <laughs> we got McClellan Air Force Base oh, in Sacramento. Yes. Oh, <laughs> and, and whatever the ba- Shepherd Air Force Base in Wichita Falls. <laughs> No, no, that's not that's not particularly desirable. I'm no. sorry to hear that. 
<laughs> so we're okay. What was it like for you being a military brat? Well, so um, uh, quite a bit of that bouncing around was actually after my my parents got divorced and um, my mother left Louisiana and um, and they relocated multiple times after that. Um, but uh, being in the military, I think um, after after my parents separated, after I was able to kind of reflect on what that time felt like, um, it I, I realized the connection to. Um, a little bit, a, a, a lack of a feeling of, of being settled, like in, in different capacities in my life. Um, I think for better or for worse, it really required me to um, be able to make friends very quickly. And I think you hear a lot of military brats talk about mm-hmm. this, the necessity of um, making connections, but also like really understanding the impermanency of, uh, the permanence of, of, of connections. Uh, Triggered, how, yeah. Right? Tr- <laughs> <laughs> wow, so early in the morning, just, <laughs> just going to get into it. Um, but, but yeah, I think that's, I think that's been um, kind of a, like a, a salient, um, a, a salient part of my life that I took from from um, military life is just like being very aware of the challenges and the impermanence of, around your connection, like interpersonal connections with folks. And I don't know if that answered your question, does, yeah, but yeah, yeah. but yeah, that was my experience. I think for all of us military brats, it's it's that and with this impermanence of. The, at once, you're able to make friends very quickly. You can yeah. walk into a room. You can say hi to people. It's it's like this kind of adaptive trait, I think, mm-hmm. that, that we, uh, not all of us, I, ma- I imagine, but that some of us um, kind of take on. Um, but out that of necessity. Im- out of necessity, right? Yeah. And But this impermanence, I think, for me, has been the thing that has been the most profound. Mm. This this idea that things don't last, Mm-mm. that there's not this attachment to And so often things. it's out of your control, I would say. That's, oh, yeah. that's what's been really interesting. That's what was interesting about the military piece. I mean, to your point about Wichita Falls and, and Sacramento, you have no control over whatever the assignment is going to be. Right, yeah. And so you were just, there's this forced... Um, relocation, right? And this, and you're you're forced to just connect with the people that you have to connect with in place. You take all this time to make those connections, and then again, without without really any of your consent, you're going to ripped out of that space, and mm. then forced to do it all over again. So, and is there any place in particular that that stands out as memorable or as home for you? I claim, so I claim Atlanta. Mm-hmm. That's a place that I spent my formative years um, as as a young person. So I claim Atlanta. Mm. Um, yeah. Atlanta's magical. It is. Yeah. There's Especially now, like as a black queer person. Yeah. Sure. Right. But it, I mean, even then, I mean, I came out in 2004 mm-hmm. and I was in high school in, in Gwinnett County yeah. at Norcross. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and was so, I was really, 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 really surprised at how comfortable I felt coming out at the high school that I was at and how well received I was by What do you think attributed to you being so comfortable? I have no idea. Okay. I still I can't figure it out. Um, everyone was just so kind. Mm. Everyone was just so nice about it. I didn't really encounter um, any backward I mean some backwards ideas obviously um, n- namely from the jocks who thought I wanted to sleep with them but oh God, not all jocks are yourself. created equal. <laughs> 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 were there other folks that were out before you at the school? Yeah, that's a great question. There was. Um, there was a guy called uh, John Michael. Mm. I try to say his name as often as I can. Okay. Because 
he was he was very out. Oh, wonderful! Like super out, and um, at the time, I didn't like how how out he was. Yeah. And he was quite flamboyant, and he wore girls' jeans and lip gloss. And mm. I had a real problem with that. Obviously, I I not obviously I had a real problem with that because I was struggling with my own idea of what it meant to be gay or or bisexual. Of course, that's how I came out initially. Um, and so I really ended up bullying him in the end. Mm. Um, mm. And it was only in later years that I kind of messed and reached out to say, I'm sorry, you know, I was having a really hard time processing, you know, processing you in the space of me and, and, and how these two different manifestations of gayness operate within the same space. Right. Yeah. So How did he receive that apology? Oh, so well. Oh, good. Yeah, okay, yeah. Good. He was understanding. Wonderful. Yeah. But well, what was your coming out experience like? Um, so I um, I did not come out in, in high school. Um, I didn't come out until until undergrad. But... But certainly I'd had um, different experiences, um, and I also came out as bi, which is fantastic. (laughs) Um, And and really um, identify as queer, I'm queer now, but I've certainly, I've I've, uh, identified as bi, identified as a lesbian for some time, and and identify as queer now. But when I came out, um, it it was, uh, by the time I came out, everyone around me had already knew. And and frankly, I think I've described this in the past, it's like, it wasn't really that um, I realized that I was queer, it's that I I realized that everyone else was not. Uh, And so what that that meant for me, especially from a bi or queer perspective, was that I just recognized that I had attractions to people of different identities um and um, experiences in in the world and I just thought that everyone felt that way right. and I think as an as an afab person in particular um women are encouraged uh, women and afab folks are encouraged to be able to see the beauty in other women AFAB? oh yes I'm sorry signed female at birth so oh, okay. just being more gender expansive in my language makes space for um, non-binary folks that you know don't maybe don't identify as male or female um but but certainly we're like assigned female at birth and so I find that um folks who are assigned female at birth um, are encouraged to have these kind of fluid uh, attractions or at least be able to recognize the beauty in other women. And I think (laughs) I can credit that to why it took me a little longer to identify as queer because I thought that that all women uh, felt this way about (laughs) about other women or at least could recognize that other women were attractive or um, were attracted to them. And uh, apparently that's certainly not the case. Yeah. <laughs> so it did take a little bit longer, but but I but I got here eventually. But I love that in your head you just imagined <laughs> that must be what everyone's like. Yes, it's a, it was. I a, think it says a lot about you. Imagine. Well, I appreciate that, but you can imagine my shock when I found out that's not the case. <laughs> <laughs> very dismayed. And and how if we can go there, how was your family's response to your coming out? Yeah. So my my um. So I, my mother actually brought me out of of the closet, and she said she walked me. I was it, it was um, a Super Bowl Sunday, and I was getting off the phone. Um, it had been it had been time to 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 tell, uh, but I just was not ready. And, and you know, um, just as you indicated in your story, that was certainly the case uh, for you. We just come to it on our own mm. in, in whatever time we take, and. Um, and I believe, so it was Super Bowl Sunday, so it was January, but the summer prior, I'd actually brought the woman that I was dating to Atlanta. Oh, I was bold. I was very <laughs> bold. And she was a more like masculine of center woman. And it was probably now that I look back on it, I was probably testing the waters and seeing right. how my mother was going to respond. But certainly I said, this was my friend. And while this woman was with me in Atlanta, my mother asked 
about me being gay and asked about her being gay. (laughs) And I denied both of these things. (laughs) And in fact, I think when it came to her, I was like, well, I don't don't know. Why would I know that, Mom? That's a ridiculous question. I I don't don't know. We don't talk about those kinds of things. (laughs) Just profoundly defensive. It's just ridiculous. Of course, I would have known. Um, And so I I got away from the conversation for some months after that. And then she kind of backed me into a corner where I was trying to get off the phone and and said, I I think you have something else you want to tell me. And I said, no, I told you about my grades. Told you about that professor. I didn't, you know, there isn't really much else to say. And after more prodding, she just literally walked me out of the class. Not literally walked me out of the class, but figuratively, <laughs> it was like I, I am, and and you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think I ever actually said the words. Um, I just broke down into tears and, and apologized profusely. Why did you apologize? Um, I certainly felt like at the time that I was letting her down. Mm. I was, um, I was just this this stellar kid, you know, just wonderful grades, um, uh, played multiple instruments and uh, doing very well in school kind of socially. And um, I, I was, I guess, a little boy crazy maybe at the time, but I didn't do, I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I, I, I really did not just, she didn't know it. I, I actually did not indulge in those things. And this just felt like a, a betrayal, I guess, in, in, in some ways that I was shattering this idea of this like, perfect daughter that she had and, and I knew that it was going to be upsetting to her and I I just I felt I felt s- sorry for that and, and where did this drive to be a perfect daughter come from was it just kind of a natural thing or were you mm. trying to prove something yeah so my parents got divorced I mentioned my parents got divorced when I was when I was younger and my mom was leaving actually a, a very abusive relationship and so for for a few years and I, I've never talked on the record about this but for a few years we were actually in hiding and my dad did not know where we were it was like it was a very she like left in the middle of the night um, and left Louisiana and went up to Delaware um, because it was one close to where my two aunts were but it was not with them because he would have known to, to look um, for for her, for her sisters. Um, it was close to them, so she would still have that connection, but it was in a different state. And it was random enough that he would never look for her in, in Delaware. Right, like, right. who would go to Delaware? <laughs> uh, like, why would, why would you do such a thing? <laughs> no offense, Delaware. Shout out to Delaware. Um, so, um, so, so anyway, yeah. Um, she, as you can imagine, there was quite a bit of hardship with her being a single black mother. And um, two daughters, um, we were 10 and 8 at the time. My grandmother got Alzheimer's um, or was diagnosed with Alzheimer's quickly after that. And so my mother was, um, she, and then she went back to school for her doctorate at the time. There was a lot that was going wow. on. And um, and she was also in hiding from my, my father. And so there was a lot, there were a lot of sacrifices that had to be made for us to lead the lives that we were, that we were living. And my sister had had some challenges kind of academically and socially and um, in terms of uh, her mental health. And I just... I think there was just the responsibility of being the oldest, the eldest child, and recognizing that I had to help, and that my mom did not need any additional complications. Um, that was fairly tangential, but I th- no, yeah, you understand what I'm saying. Totally. Yeah. It oh, was wow. complicated. Yeah. Your mother sounds like an amazing woman. She she was she was she passed um, unfortunately in 2008. Yeah, pretty suddenly too. It's really actually. Um, she she was. Um, she was such a mentor to so many people. I was actually on a panel um, last week in the middle of the week, and the woman um, who is the like, deputy um, deputy secretary of health or something for Pennsylvania, she's a black woman. She went to Spelman College where my mom was vice president there, and um, and we'd never sat on a panel together, uh, but I knew that she 
um, she was one of my mother's, she was um, at Spelman when my mother was an administrator there, and there was some question about mentorship or, um, or our role models. And she said, you know, I've never been on a panel with Amber before, but this is my question. This is always, this is always my answer when I receive this question from um, young black folks who are in the room with young black people about, about mentors. And Amber's mother was my mentor, and she was a mentor to so many um, generations of Spelman women. And so I got a little, I got a little choked up. I just say that story because um, I was very fortunate to have that woman as a role model, but she was just, she was just such an icon and such a role model for, I mean, just generations of, of young black women. Um, so yeah, she was, yeah, she's quite a giant. She's five one, but but quite a giant. <laughs> you would never know it. Yeah. Talk to me about the kind of evolution of mm. Amber Hikes, and that's it's purposefully broad. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm kind of curious to find out if there was, if university was a catalyst for you, if there was mm-hmm. a g- group of friends, if there was something um, that was happening in society writ large mm-hmm. that you responded to. So how did how did we how did we get the Amber we have now? <laughs> it's all of the above, actually. Okay. So I was one of these these queers that, well, it did take me a long time to declare my sexual orientation. As soon as I said it out loud, I was like in the GSA, the QSA, or whatever. I was in. It was called Haven. Was the LGBT student group? I was literally there on Sunday, like <laughs> a couple of days. I, I kissed a girl, like I, I declared my sexual orientation, <laughs> and then boom, was there on Sunday. Like, what can I do? Where do you need me? I, I signed up for the movement kind of immediately, and um, and so I I, I, I served in that group. Um, I believe for for I, I I yeah I think I was I was there probably for about at least six months to a year, and then a good friend of mine was the the secretary. She was the secretary for the group, and she suggested that I run for an office in the group, right? And it was something you know it was one of these lower offices. It was social chair actually, and she had a really logical argument. She was just like, "You are the person that decides like what we're doing on Friday night, and you take us to you know college night, and we do the drag shows and and whatever. And you're just the person that people go to to say you know what what's what's going on? How are we gathering? How are we hanging out? And so why don't you just do that for all the queers you're doing it anyway why don't you do that here on a on on this like this larger level here in our student group and I'd never run for anything before I felt um like I had just gotten to the group all the leadership of the organization at the time I believe were white were white folks um the president definitely the president and vice president were definitely white men uh white white young white gay men and I just didn't know that I saw myself in that space mm-hmm. right we had take often in my work about how representation matters and um if you you know if you see it you can be it and at that time I just was not seeing it um so there was quite a bit of imposter syndrome I think that was taking place there but um but anyway she convinced me to to run and throw my name my my hat in the ring and and I did and I think my challenger actually ended up dropping out and voting for me the day of it was, <laughs> it was like very dramatic um, <laughs> but uh, but it was exciting and I um uh, we did a great number of things in the in the two years that I served as the social chair for that group um, but like huge massive drag shows that um, actually interestingly enough almost got me kicked out of college go on. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the University of Delaware at the time had never done a drag show um, before, like a like a large one, and so I, I rented out the multi-purpose rooms. And uh, at the time, those rooms, if you put them all three together, you know, they had like these dividers, mm. these partitions, and you can segment them off into. Um, I think they had like a capacity of two hundred people at a time, and so you took the dividers out, you did all three multi-purpose rooms, you could have six hundred folks, and. Um, 
And we, we tried to just do one, and we sold the thing out, and we had 600 folks at this massive uh, drag event. And these weren't big names. I mean, these were not RuPaul's Drag Race yeah. um, in, 2000, <laughs> in 2004, uh, as you can imagine. But um, but they were the folks from the little local uh, queer club that, that we went to. And I was like, they're, they're really great. And, you know, we're fucking 18, 19, whatever, excuse me. Um, we're like 18, 19 years old. And... Um, and so I just asked them to come, and you know we had a little budget, and they came. And the the reason I got kicked out is so there was this incredible black. Uh, she was a drag queen. She's a trans. She's a trans woman who who also performs as a, as a drag queen, and she and now that I work and with um, drag queens and burlesque folks, I know this um, as popping a pasty. But it's essentially when you're when your pasty pops off in the middle of a performance, right. which as you imagine is, is like it's frowned upon. Uh, it's, <laughs> at least in the states, it is, Front and it's. <laughs> Apparently it's frowned upon, and it's certainly frowned upon yeah, at a college. Hashtag Janet. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, so we, we have this context now. This is before Janet. Um, so she is at the at the end of her number. She you know takes her, her dress off, and there's tassels, and she's doing tassel twirling, which even that was probably frowned upon at the university. Um, but she popped the pasty at the exact moment that my dean was walking <laughs> by the event, and so I was in his uh, in his office the next the next morning and had to beg and plead for my uh, <laughs> to stay and <laughs> remain in my education. Um, and and so luckily, they, they they let you stay. They <laughs> did. They did. <laughs> But I do a lot of work with that with that queen now, and, and she tells that story very proudly that she almost got me kicked out of college. <laughs> She's like, "Oh yeah, that woman that works uh, as the executive director of the mayor's office. Yeah, she um, yeah, she almost yeah. got kicked out of college because I my, my nipple slipped out <laughs> when she was nineteen. So anyway, I'm sorry. No, that's <laughs> so, brilliant. So random, but um, that's kind of how I got my how I got my my start <laughs> in the in the community. And so, was there a, was there a formative experience um, over the course of, that, of those two years mm-hmm. for you that kind of I, I guess what I'm curious about is is how you understood that this was the route you wanted to go down. Mm. And was there something within no. those two years that? Mm. I don't. I've never thought about it in, in that way. I will say that I never. I never one thought I was going to get into politics, and I never thought I was going to be um, a professional queer. Like you know, yeah. <laughs> I certainly didn't think I was going to be the gayer of, uh, of the city of Philadelphia, as they call me, queer commander in chief. So I did not think that I was going to be uh, gay for pay in, 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 that, <laughs> in that particular way. Um, but looking back on it, we were having a string of. Um, of, of frankly hate crimes and bias-based incidences uh, against the LGBTQ community and really a lot of our marginalized groups. Um, at that time, a friend, of, a very good friend of mine who was um, a, a particularly um, more feminine of center, um, pretty flamboyant, I mean, we, that's, what, that's how we referred to him at the time and how he identified a gay man would walking down the street outside of our dorms and had a bottle. People were screamed uh, slurs at him and uh, threw a bottle at him. And so his you know, his back was all cut up and he had blood. And he was a very, very good friend of mine. And so actually when he came in after this assault, uh, my room was the one he came to afterwards. And so in addition to that, and um, uh, again, homophobic slurs and racial slurs being written on dorm uh, doors and on the offices of our, um, our student unions, um, I, I created, a, we called it a unity dinner at the time, and so this was a partnership with all of the student organizations that were interested in stepping up, and um, and some of our administrators, we needed to have a faculty sponsor or something of the, of the sort at the time, and we even partnered at that time um, with the college Democrats and the college Republicans as well, which 
wild. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I was certainly uh, certainly more interested in reaching across the aisle at that time than I am now. It was a different it was a different climate. Um, but that would I think that was. Um, I, yeah, I think I would look back on that as probably one of the more substantive things that I did around uniting communities, specifically marginalized communities, in response to to bias-based incidences. And unfortunately, there's been many more since since that that time. But yeah, that was as a um, yeah as a 19, 20 year old kid getting these groups together and talking about the need to create, um, we were calling some safe spaces there, but safer, braver spaces on our college campuses. Um, the only thing that I will add to that is that um, at the very same time, uh, no, 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 a couple years after that, my mother was then at Virginia Tech. And so this is a year um, or two, yeah, this is two years before the massacre. And um, and people are familiar with the massacre mm. over, over here? I'm, I'm actually not sure. Okay, yeah. okay. So Virginia Tech um, at the largest, at that time, it was the largest um, the, the largest mass killing in, in the United States. And so um, folks, uh, young people, there was a student that um, that opened fire on, mm. in multiple places on, on a campus and, and killed a, a number of students and administrators. Um, and so this is a couple of years before the massacre, but my mother was experiencing the same kind of incidences on her college campus. And she, I didn't finish telling the story of my coming out story, but she, um, she was very, um, she was very kind and and generous with my coming out, and really just wanted to take care of me at the moment that I came out. But I think she struggled kind of immediately after that. In fact, there were a few months where we did not speak, and um, and I think we were just giving each other space. She was never um, outwardly or openly homophobic, which I'm I'm very grateful for. I, I feel very privileged to have had that experience. Um, but she also was not particularly. Uh, particularly encouraging after that mm-hmm. moment where I was crying and apologizing. Um, but I will say she came to me as um, a vice president at Virginia Tech when her students, specifically her LGBT students, were having this experience with homophobic and uh, transphobic slurs that were being um, kind of drawn on their on their spaces. And she came to me with her plan for how she was going to address it for for her students. And she she asked, like, like as a you know, as a as a bisexual or like, you know, as an LGBTQ student, if your administration approached it in this way, would this would this feel um would this feel valid? Would would this feel um would this feel helpful to you? Would you would you feel um, seen and heard by these by these actions, and so she she had a great start, and I was able to kind of work with her on how an administration should should speak up about these and, and really frankly condemn these kind of acts on the on their campus. And years later, um, a young man said that my mother was the greatest ally that uh, Virginia Tech had, had ever had in terms of their administration. Wow. So that was, and he had no idea that my mother had a, had a queer kid. So. Um, so anyway, I think those were, I think maybe that answers, in, in, at least in early years, those are some of the turning points for me around um, the importance of, of this work, and specifically from an intersectional perspective. Um, so that's what it looked like early on. And um, and then certainly I got involved with our, our queer student group when I was in um, grad school as well. And I had the opportunity in my first year of my grad program to work with LGBTQ youth. I'm, I, um, I went to social work school and... Uh, I was placed with uh, the Attic Youth Center, which is the LGBTQ Youth Center in Philadelphia. And uh, Philadelphia, the demographics of Philadelphia, I don't know if other people know this, um, it is 40, it's a very majority minority city in, in, a, lot, in a lot of ways in that our urban centers are, but Philadelphia specifically is 44% black. So it is a very black city. I actually heard on the um, on BBC yesterday that London is um, 40% um, P 
POC, like people of BAME, color. I think. Yeah. yeah, BAME, right. And um, so you can imagine like 44% black. It's a very black city. I say that to say that our, um, our young people that are at our LGBTQ center are not probably the kind of you know mainstream um, representation of like young white LGBTQ folks. Like these are oh, black and brown young people. Um, and so their challenges are, are multi multi-layered um so that opportunity was was um was fascinating and eye-opening and i think that was when i realized that this was the work if i was fortunate enough to work with lgbtq people that's the work that i wanted to do and i want to do it specifically with with young people um so so yeah then after that i was i I worked in college access work and education access work with um low-income first-generation to college students. So these are young people who they have not been to, they've obviously not been to college, they're high school students, their parents have not been, so they're the first in their families to, to go to college. Um, and and so we would work with them starting in ninth grade to help bridge the gap between what they were learning in their high schools or not learning, frankly, in their high schools and what they needed to know in order to get into college. Um, and that was everything. I mean, it was everything from your actual like, substantive knowledge around um, your actual studies to the, the the cultural knowledge that you need. Because there was quite mm. a bit of um, culture shock that would happen when you would, um, their schools were 100% black. Like there were no white people in their schools aside from the teachers sometimes. And so you go from that to a predominantly white institution and it is, um, it's very challenging yeah, for yeah, these young yeah, folks, wow. as you can imagine. Yeah. It's, it's challenging even if you go to white schools. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's just like, oh God, this is what it's always yeah, going to be fatigue. like. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> very, very, that, that's very real, very that, very that. Um, so we, we try to help, um, we try to help folks make that transition so that they are uh, more equipped to, to stay to, to stay in school and uh, and 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 not drop out. But um, yeah, so I did that. I did that work, and then I did it in in Philadelphia. I was headhunted to come do it in uh, Long Beach, California, and then um, I was headhunted to come run the mayor's office. After that, <laughs> I expand that up there. Right no, it's perfect. It's great. It takes us right to where we want to be. So we're going to get to the black and brown stripes. Okay. But I, I'd like to understand and to give our listeners um, a bit more meat. Because mm-hmm. I think everything you look at about Amber Hikes is about these stripes. Mm-hmm. But I imagine there's so much more to this role as executive director of um, LGBT affairs for the mayor's office. Mm-hmm. So what is that role? What does it look like? Oh, wow. So the first thing I think it's really important is that there are only we are one of four similar offices in the entire country wow. um, of the United States that are offices of LGBT affairs. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's us, D.C., Santa Clara County, California, and Union County, New Jersey. All of those, I, I know, very random. Everybody was like, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> that took a hard left. Yes, it, it did very quickly. Um, those are the only offices of LGBT affairs. When I usually say that, that there were only four people think New York, D.C., uh, no, think New York, San Francisco, Atlanta. Atlanta exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Seattle, exactly. at least. Exactly, right? Come on. <laughs> um, those places uh, may have a mayor's liaison. They may have an advisory board or a commission. It's very different from having an office and a person who is completely dedicated to LGBTQ issues. Um, often, like, a, a city liaison is just a city employee, like a gay city employee that has other like gay shit thrown on top of their job. (laughs) It's not like gay stuff is not their only job, which is, I'm fortunate, it's mine. Um, What's exciting about Philadelphia is that in 2015, our office became a part of the city charter, which means that if at any time 
the city was to elect a mayor who was unfriendly to LGBTQ issues, that person could not just unilaterally get rid of the office because it's now a part of the, the city code and the city charter because the people wow. in Philadelphia like voted this office in. It wasn't like an executive order or the mayor just decided to throw it in and then he could get rid of it. The people of Philadelphia said, you know, our LGBTQ population is such that a big is deal. That is profound. It is. It is. And again, you don't, you don't see that often. I just say that for context because when folks find out that we are one of very few offices, they want to know and they know the work that we do. They want to find out how they can do it in their own cities. And so in addition to having this office, I think it's really important to have it be a part of the legislation in the city so that you make sure that you have um, consistent uh, representation for for your communities. So I definitely want to encourage folks to keep that and be mindful of that. I'm so struck by that. Yeah, right. That, that it's been codified into yes. the legislature. It's really powerful, it's, right? It's huge. Because when we talk about, you know, we, we now have... Um, in government, I think we have some sort of LGBT affairs mm. person. I'm sure. N- not that many of us know their name, right? right. Which probably <laughs> speaks to the inefficacy of yeah, <laughs> the British government writ large. But, um, but to know that because it's a power thing, mm-hmm. right? It and is. that for those of us who, I mean, I want to go into public office at some point. You know, Wonderful. I really want to serve particularly the queer community of color, but, you know, LGBTQ people at, um, mm-hmm. across the board. Um, and actually knowing that we can perhaps agitate and activate and build these offices that mm-hmm. don't currently exist in a meaningful way yes. is actually super inspiring. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm, glad, to, I'm glad to hear that. What's, what's exciting about our office is, um, so I'm under the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. We also have the Mayor's Commission for People with Disabilities, but there's also a Black Male Engagement Office. There's a Women's Commission. There's a Youth Commission. And so all of us are doing this work, again, very intersectionally, but all of us are doing this work and making sure that these marginalized groups are represented in city government. Um, and and so what I would say, our office is um, the most community-engaged office in uh, in the country, frankly, and, and people could know that the black and brown stripes are kind of part of those efforts, but most of these offices are policy offices, so they're very um, internal-facing. Um, and we certainly do quite a bit of policy, both internal, so in terms of... Um, advising city departments and agencies on their own policies. So for instance, uh, we do a lot of work around the Department of Human Services. So this is um, young people in foster care. And my work is is about, um, especially because my background is, in, is with youth, is making sure we know that uh, LGBTQ fo- young people are overrepresented in foster care. We know that they're overrepresented in terms of um, the rates of homelessness. Um, we far, far overrepresented in, in, in terms of um, homelessness. And those things are linked. I say those stats together because we know that young people are being kicked out of their homes or they're leaving their homes because they're untenable or violent situations. And um, and when they're put into the foster care system at that point, if our Department of Human Services does not have LGBTQ inclusive policy around how you're going to find safe and affirming homes for those young people, and even on a, on a, on a lower level, if we don't have a way of being able to, to identify that these young people are LGBTQ, of course, if they consent to us identifying that, if we don't know that and we don't identify that within our own, our, our forms or our systems, then you have a higher rate um, or higher probability of placing a young person in another unaffirming home. And after that happens a couple of times, as you can imagine, these young people say, you know what, just just forget it. If this is what it's going to be like, then I'd rather couch surf or I'd rather just go at it alone on on the street. And so that's why we see that for young people who identify, I'm sorry, for young people who are homeless, 
uh, 40% of them identify as LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Now that is again a profound overrepresentation. Yeah. We are, you know, what the, the highest rates we see are like 10%. Um, of course, I think those those that's a that's an underrepresentation. I think that we're there are a lot more queer people than 10% of the population. But at the highest numbers, we see that 10% of of folks are LGBTQ. For us to be 40% mm-hmm. of young people who are homeless, it's um it's frankly an epidemic. So so our work will look something like that. So not just advising DHS on the policies they need to have, but also helping them to write those policies and then working with the young people and finding out what their experiences are and having them at the table to tell us what do social workers need to know, what do um, what do caseworkers need to know, what do supervisors need to know, how can we serve you better um, to make this uh, just a more inclusive environment. So, yeah. And so how did this conversation about the black and brown stripes originate? How did it begin? Because mm, um, the, the, the flag was launched in June 2017. That's exactly yeah. right, yeah. It's part of a 30-some-odd year I guess at this point it's 30, 34, 30, yeah, 34 year conversation that we've been having in the city in Philadelphia, specifically around um, racism in the LGBTQ community. And again, I think that has a lot to do with our demographics, right? Um, when you're a majority minority city in the way that we are, and specifically when you're such a, a black and brown city, um, you are having some pretty honest conversations around the experiences of these folks within this marginalized group. And so we had a report that was given to the mayor. Um, in 1986, and it was actually a report that was created by this group called Men of All Colors Together, and so it was this interracial group of of gay men who, and I think there were probably some some lesbians and trans and and um, and bi and queer folks that were documenting what we still see today. And this is not a Philadelphia problem. I want to be very clear mm-hmm. about that. They were documenting what we see all over the world: um, a lack of representation in the leadership of our LGBT, our larger LGBT orgs. So the the orgs being white and male and cis, but they're representing people of color, right? And specifically around the the epidemic, the HIV/AIDS crisis. Um, at that time, the focus was very much on, on white gay men, but certainly, as we know, still, um, black and brown folks were, again, disproportionately impacted by, by the crisis, but but were not being acknowledged in that way. So a lack of representation in our leadership, discriminatory practices in our bars and our organizations, um, everything from discriminatory dress codes that were particularly targeted towards people of color to um, different practices with, with identification. So POC folks being required to give two, three, four types of ID when white folks could just walk in and out, right? Um, and so so this report was given to the mayor. Um, it was kind of brushed to the side, again, because other things bubbled up to the surface in terms of priority over the next 30 years. So the, the crisis, marriage equality, you know, all, all kinds of different things that took priority over um, over issues around discrimination. So, um, so anyway, in 2016, so we're fast forwarding, in 2016, the smoking gun was that this video was released of a neighborhood uh, bar owner, and, and the Philadelphia has the oldest neighborhood, uh, the oldest like neighborhood. We were the first ones to call a neighborhood the neighborhood, um, and it's exactly what it sounds like. I don't have to explain that. <laughs> but uh, this neighborhood bar owner was caught on tape saying the N word over and over again. He's in the the basement of his bar, um, speaking very disparagingly about black patrons, um, and this went viral. And for a lot of white folks, it was frankly shocking to them, you know. Um, and yeah, I, as it typically is, as it typically what is. Do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean? We've been talking about this for 30, <laughs> 30 fucking years now. Have you yeah, been? welcome to the party, right? Yeah. Like, this is this is like, this is like perfect example of privilege, um, and also such a perfect example of like this myopic definition of racism. We've been talking about racism, um, both kind of like um, latent and, and blatant racism, um, but 
it was you're you're not a racist unless you're using the N word. Right. Um, and so now they're like, oh, well, that that but that guy's racist. But like, we're not racist. Like, we know that's why we don't use the N word. It's like, no, we're talking about structural inequalities. But uh, anyway, again, I, I digress. Um, but this led to boycotts and protests and a lot of unrest in the community. There were there were hearings, and and sorry, was that unrest namely black and brown people by virtue of the city being predominantly black and brown, or did you see kind of white allyship really step forward in that moment? We did. It took a little time. It took a little. Okay time for the white allyship, frankly. But yes, this this work was led by black and brown activists, specifically the Black and Brown Workers Cooperative, the Worker, Workers Collective at the time. Um, and these folks helped launch these this direct action around these concerns. And it, they were larger campaigns. It wasn't just about the bar, right? Then that put a spotlight on these organizations that are serving um, black and brown folks primarily, but just do not reflect the populations and um, only have the black and brown folks on the frontline staff, but don't have them in kind of any real leadership or change making um, positions. So after the, the you know, after the, the yelling and the screaming and the boycotting, then we did get some white allies and said, okay, this is this is a larger concept. This is a larger problem. I am I am listening to my friends of color, my colleagues of color, and I'm hearing their experiences. And so what can I do? How can I use my privilege, use my body to to show up in space for you all? Um, but it was we're talking we're, yeah we're talking months and months of months of, of like serious unrest in the community. Um, I think that context is really important because this galvanized folks in October of 2016, and by and I mean it, it really been a conversation for a you know for for a year before that, but but by June of 2017 we had. Um, I'm sorry, by March of 2017, I had taken over the Office of LGBT Affairs. My predecessor was actually um, asked to resign uh, because of her lack of... her lack of action around these issues. Mm. She did not speak out. She had nothing to say. Um, and she really, uh, frankly, I think she was accused of kind of gaslighting the community in, in right. a way around these concerns. So there were a lot of different leadership changes, and my predecessor was, was one of those changes. And so I was brought in to address, to solve racism. And, uh, <laughs> and so that's going great. That's going super great. Um, <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, it is not. And, um, but but, as, but I, I think the context is important and I was giving years because um, Trump was elected in, mm. in um, you know, a couple of months after after that. And I received, so Trump was elected in November. I received a call from the mayor in January asking if I would take this position. And I'm in California at the time. Uh, sorry, so just for the timeline. So the um, unrest was October of 2016. It was like then June, Tr- July, right. August. But yeah, And then yeah. Trump was elected in November, came into office in January. That's right. You got a call from the mayor in Philadelphia in January. Oh, in Inauguration Day, actually. Oh. <laughs> the very first time I talked to the mayor, we the both mayor was watching like, Shit, we got a problem. He literally said, are you watching this shit? The very first words the mayor ever spoke to me. And I was like, I think I'm going to like this guy. Um, but, I mean, he's he's a 60-year-old white man from, um, white Irish guy from South Philly. And Irish is Irish-American um, from South Philly. And I, I, I give that context because we could not be more different mm. from each other. So I had some reservations, frankly, which I was very transparent with him about. I had some reservations about coming to work for, for him in the mayor's office. But... Um, but yeah, he he said, I know, I know you're I know you're like on the beach, you know, you're in Long Beach, you were in you're in L.A. It is um, it's frankly unfair for me to ask you to come back to Philadelphia and do this work, especially when you were seeing 
when you were seeing the unrest that this is not going to be an easy job, but we really need some bold voices. And I promise you that as long as you tell me the right thing to do and you challenge me to do the right thing, I'll do it. And I said, oh, I just I get to I get to tell, you know, a, a white privileged guy what to do and how to get it right. and Use that platform to help guide us through these very challenging times as a city and as a country. Sure. Yeah, I'll do it. So I, I moved back across the country. I mean, in, in, in a matter of weeks, um, in a matter of weeks, I packed up my life and moved back across the country. And so I started my position in March of 2017. And um, and I wanted to do this work from a symbolic and a substantive perspective, which I've talked about before. And so we continued the substantive work of having hearings um, around racism in the LGBTQ community, having community conversations, policy and legislation changes. We have um, we have anti-discrimination legislation on the books. We have like 16 protected classes, age, race, sex, um, sexual orientation, gender identity have been on the books since, um, since 82 and 2002. Uh, respectively, um, but we did not have any real, um, real punitive measures for for businesses that were discriminating. Right. So you can discriminate, and you, if you're found to be discriminating, you don't get a slap on the wrist. You could be, you, you know, you could be fined. Um, but we were able to pass legislation that says like a business can be shut down for discriminating against folks and shut down for a time if they're found to be persistently discriminating. And um, and that was a bold move, really, um, for city government to, mm. to step out in that way. And, and that came out of the the hearings around neighborhood racism. So anyway, that was some of the substantive work that we were doing. But I really thought it was imp- important to have um, a symbolic representation of this time in our city's history. And I say our city's history because it was, in, it was a local initiative. So now that I give you that context, you understand what Philadelphia was grappling mm, with at mm. the time. And this ad agency actually brought me in and said, you, you keep talking about the, the importance of this, of this time. And so we have this simple, and it was very simple, this rainbow flag with black and brown stripes. And I, I teared up, but I was also like, oh, this is cute. You know, with my like activist work, it's like, this is a, this is, this is a cute little move. Um, so yeah, sure, this is, this is a softball for, for me in the, in the work that I do, but yeah, this this will work. Let's do this. I, mean, I feel I feel good about this, um, and it felt like I I saw myself represented in a way that I hadn't um, really felt connected to in in, um, in terms of the six stripe flag. Um, anyway, took it to the mayor, took it to our commission, took it to city council. Everybody loved it, and we raised. We kept it under wraps for for a month and, and some change, but we raised the flag on a Thursday, and by Friday it made national news, and then by Saturday it was international mm-hmm. news, um, and so it happened very very quickly. And I mean, it was remarkable when it, when it launched that it, flag. It really was. It was it was shocking. Um, the response was overwhelmingly positive. I mean, people were just. And again, it was it was an international response, right? Getting emails from Australia and, and South Africa and folks saying, "Like I, this, this is this is me." And, and what you all are talking about these are you know these are experiences that we're having here, um, and like the Netherlands adopting it. I'm like, I didn't even know y'all had people of color. No, 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 <laughs> yeah. no shade, no shade. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> but you know, but that that's that's what it was. It was it was, um, but it was daunting at the, at the same time. I think the problem was the way that the um, media outlets sensationalized the flag. Uh, they presented it without the local context. And I, I think that was that presented some of the greater greater challenges we had around folks understanding um, 
specifically white folks, because POC folks got it, right? Um, but <laughs> let's be honest. But white folks understanding what this meant for Philadelphia and also what it would probably mean for, for their cities. So it was a... It was a complicated conversation. Yeah, I mean, you, you see now I'm wearing the, the cart tee with yes. the black and brown stripe <laughs> on it. And um, it's it's honestly, the when that flag launched, I it was like, oh, I didn't know that that was a possibility. Right. But that adding, oh, my, but of course. Yes, so right? simple. So, so, it was so simple. And I wear this T-shirt now with absolute pride. Oh, wonderful. Whereas before the rainbow flag, it you know, a symbol is only a symbol when we give it meaning. Mm-hmm. And I think for so many people of color, for so many you know, black um, um, LGBTQ people, it has given us, it has ignited something within us. That oh. even if we're not, even if we walk out onto the street or down through Soho and, and we kind of still feel that discrimination, mm-hmm. that there is now a symbol that, that, that we are represented it's by. It's ours. Yeah, it's ours almost. There's yeah. something that's really profound about that. And I don't think I understood what it was going to mean to other people, certainly on a national or global scale. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, this was not, this was supposed to be a local response to local issues. We knew this was happening in other places, but it was supposed to be a Philadelphia symbol. And so as we think about the symbolic and the substantive, which yeah. is, you know, you, this is why you got into this work, is is there something that, that you've seen change within mm-hmm. the city of Philadelphia or indeed queer people of color within that space who having now received the symbol, perhaps maybe feel galvanized or energized? That's a leading question, but mm-hmm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm asking how the symbol has kind of influenced the substantive. I really wish I could take credit. Um, I, I can't. Philadelphia is a very activist city. And as I said before, we've been having these conversations for over 30 years. I do think that seeing the way that the symbol has been received in other places has helped us have pride around the conversations that we were having right. in a very explicit way before other cities were having them. And it's a solidarity thing. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's a, that's very, exactly, mm. exactly. So we're, we're very proud of that. Um, and we're proud, yeah, we're proud of the, the conversations and the narratives that are happening um, around racism in the LGBTQ community. Um, so I, I so I do see that. Um, but I, I can't I, I can't take credit for that conversation in Philadelphia, again, because we have just such a rich history around that. But I, I do say that the symbol has become um, a symbol for that for that movement, which was, of course, the intention to sure. be able to look at that and say, this represents that conversation. And whatever your your experience of this flag is, whatever your response is, it is indicative of the necessity of this conversation. And so I so I so often lean into white people's discomfort around this flag. And it was so interesting in interviews that I gave right after the launch of the flag and, and sends, I mean, just as recently as the Gay Times article about um, about Manchester adopting the flag, um, I really encourage white folks to interrogate, white folks who have problems with the flag, to interrogate why they have an issue with this flag and not the trans flag or the bi flag or the lesbian flag or the bear flag or the leather yeah. flag. We have yeah. so many damn flags in our community. <laughs> um, and, and we should, as we should, mm. because we are such a varied and diverse community. And all of these flags, of course, all of those identity groups that I just um, I just acknowledged are under the the umbrella of the rainbow community. But we recognize that they deserve their own representation and their own symbolism. And there's not the kind of pushback for those flags that we saw with this flag. And so I mm, wonder why? I wonder why. And I also think I I always try to remind myself, and then also 
and anyone I encounter in Busy Bee and Black listeners, is that you know Black Asian minority ethnic, as we are called in the UK, yes, BAME, BAME, LGBTQ, POC, QPO, like these are all quite clunky, mm-hmm. right? And and they're never going to fully represent everybody. Absolutely, nor should they. Right. And so how how do we? you know, uh, under these kind of clunky monikers that we have, um, what have you found has been helpful in kind of carving out your own space? Mm -hmm. And kind of, I think we're all tethered to this movement in some way, even Mm -hmm. those of us who are maybe a bit further away and and aren't kind of like in the nitty gritty. Mm -hmm. But but how have you figured out or learned or or what's helped you kind of carve out your space within this as Amber, maybe not Amber executive director of LGBTQ affairs, (laughs) but just as as Amber, the, the queer woman. It's it's complicated. Queer black woman. Queer black woman. Sorry. That's right. No, no, thank you for all those identities. <laughs> but that's the point, right? And it, it's complicated because I, at the same time that I am being very intentional about carving out space for for me, for people who look like me, for people that hold my identities, I am also always talking about doing that work intersectionally. And so recognizing how structural oppressions affect other people disproportionately and also finding a way that I can use what privilege I do have to to signal boost and stand in solidarity with people that have less access than myself. So it's, it's, it's complicated. You're simultaneously carving out space and then um, giving up space, right? I'm giving up the privilege that I hold in certain spaces to make room for transgender, non-conforming, non-binary people, for people with disabilities, for people with with less economic resources, right? Um, For people with less education access, right? So I think for people who are immigrants. um, So so I'm I'm just simultaneously trying to, to kind of hold my space and say this is for folks who are marginalized in the way that I'm marginalized and also I hold great amounts of privilege and so where can I hold this space and also utilize this space for other folks who don't have the the privilege that I do so that that's not that's a that's a fairly nebulous answer but but I I do think that it it just demonstrates how complicated this this kind of evolving these evolving communities are uh, well, it's. I don't think it is nebulous. I actually think it's quite instructive. Okay. I think because we we tend to um, we tend to come up against people who only think about the space they occupy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they might not even think about occupying as themselves occupying the space. This is me. I am here, and who cares about anyone else? Mm. And so, as queer people of color, as queer black people, we're constantly bumping up these against these people, against these quote-unquote allies. Mm. Um, and so I think it's a very helpful answer. And it's, it, it's yeah, it's instructive. It's, it's helpful, but it also says a lot about you. Well, I appreciate that. Mm. I really do. I mean, if, I, if, I, if there's nothing else that folks get out of this, I really do think that in this day and age, um, in this time, in our, our world's history, um, because the problems, the challenges that we're seeing around xenophobia and racism and homophobia and transphobia in the, in the States are certainly happening here in the UK. I mean, just this week, it was interesting that we had this, this, this parliament event where we're talking about, I was talking about intersectionality, and literally one of the Brexit votes was happening like at the exact moment. We are in the speaker's chambers, like the speaker's house, and the, our host had to leave to go vote for one of the Brexit votes, and so, and it, it was it, yeah, it was isn't it? really it was just mm. poetic in a in a in a in a heartbreaking way. But I I say that to say we must be interrogating the spaces that we hold and the privilege that we hold. Um, we are just not going to get through this time and this work together, um, thinking about ourselves and segmenting ourselves, right, or, or just looking out. Um, for carving out our own space, as you were as you were saying before, it's just um, it's not sustainable. It's just it's just not sustainable. 
So, warrior woman, <laughs> how do you practice self-care? Why does everyone keep asking? Well, I brought this up. Well, we also you don't have to answer that, but I brought it up because of Audre Lorde. Oh, right. Yes, and I think you're quite inspired by Audre Lorde. Quite a bit. Yeah, quite a bit. I so quoted I'm her curious. twice just the other day. <laughs> so I'm curious about um, what self care looks like, and I think people keep asking you because we're in process. Mm-hmm. We're figuring this out as we go. Yeah, and it's so helpful to hear what other people are doing. Because I think there's there might be kind of a misconception of what self-care looks like, that it might be bubble baths and... Um, <laughs> Face masks. Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm my phone. <laughs> um, and so I'm curious in, in the different ways that the self-care manifests in, in the people who are doing such um, important work in our communities. Yeah. Um, this this answer is always complicated for me. I am not doing... I am not doing a very, a very good job of, um, of balancing. I'll be... Uh, yeah, I guess I'll be transparent and um, and honest about that. I don't like usually answering the question because I do not want folks to think that this is sustainable to to operate in the way that I do. I also do not want to encourage anyone to do work in the way that I, I do. And so, just to be more specific, I work um, I work twelve to fourteen hour days, and my work, which is like a lot of a lot of people work very long days, but they are not usually required to be as outward facing mm-hmm. as I am. So, I'm actually a profoundly introverted person, and my job requires me to be incredibly extroverted and I'm also holding a lot of trauma with folks. Folks call my office every day who are incarcerated and dealing with um abuse in the in the prison system. People and, and these are mostly um these are trans folks, um some folks who are who are queer identified, but a lot of trans folks who are housed in the wrong prisons and are experiencing abuse and are really just looking for any kind of resources they can. People who are experiencing housing crises, people who are experiencing discrimination at their um their place of employment or in a place of public accommodation. And, and and so you have to hold space for all of that and then find out some way to do it um through legislation and through policy, which it's frustrating to be a social worker in this work, but not be doing direct social work. I don't. I, I we're a policy office, um, we're a community engagement office, but I'm I'm not a case manager, and so there's this this um this this very kind of difficult dynamic holding people's pain constantly and and being able to connect them to resources, but not being able to do that to do that for them um, yourself, and so. Um, but I do this work. I think this is the only way to do this work, especially in these times. And so I, I work very long hours because I think that is what's required of the people who are doing this work now. I do not think it's sustainable. Um, but I would encourage folks who are interested in doing this to be very mindful about finding their people. Um, find your people either in your work professionally, especially if you're doing um, trauma work and we're all doing trauma work, you are doing trauma work, holding space for um, for BAME folks here in, in the UK and, 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 and all over. Like this is, these are these are traumatic times. And so you're doing a very healing work for so many of us. And so I, you have to find, you have to find your people because that that's how we're healing each other is being able to tell our stories, be able to hold space um, and, and, uh, and fill each other's, fill each other's cups up. So I would say to, to find your people, but I, I also don't want to poo-poo those like traditional, un, uh, you know, unplug your phone, put on <laughs> sure, your face sure. mask, do your bubble bath. Um, 
And so I, I was definitely saying those traditional forms of self-care. And then finally, I would say um, I, I, I couldn't talk about self-care without talking about therapy. I really do think that we have to be taking care of ourselves. We have to be talking to, to folks about the trauma that we're holding, like the generations of a trauma. We are holding our ancestors' trauma. And we are always being kind of um, newly activated. And we have to, if we are going to continue doing this work and living in these uh, these BAME bodies in this world that is just like literally built to oppress us we have got to be working through that in a substantive way um so yeah so find your people uh do your traditional forms of of, of self-care whatever that looks like for you and and certainly um talk to someone go go to therapy mm, that's beautiful okay actually because what you've done is you've you've made because you've been able to frame your work as healing work mm -hmm. right because by you creating space to hold that trauma and that pain, you are you are you are helping heal other people. Mm -hmm, mm, and so you. I love that 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 self care question actually turned into a this is me helping other people heal kind of question. Yeah. I love that. Thank is that, you. Is that right? Or did it I absolutely, that? absolutely. I mean, okay. I, 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 if that's how it was interpreted, I think that works. I was just going to jump in and also say, go to the gym. I, I think. I mean, yeah. if, if that if that works for folks, mm. I, I I go to gym like five six days a week, and I will I will even like I will make time to leave the office and go right down the street to the gym. If I don't punch a punching bag, I may punch a person. And so, <laughs> don't punch people. <laughs> I mean, some people deserve it, but try not to punch people. Uh, so go, go to the gym, run it out, do whatever you have to do. Uh, but I think that's important as well, taking care of our bodies. Um, to close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? I imagine this is probably the hope for so many of us, but I... Um, I, I... I truly hope for real real liberation for our for our people um in a way in a way that is intersectional and holds space for so many of our of our different identities i i talked often today um and i kind of i i i put us um I put us in. I, I spoke about us being in conflict with with white folks, kind of very specifically. And I talked about uh, around a binary. Um, I use a lot of binary language around like POC folks and white folks or BAME folks and and white folks. But I think with it, when I when I talk about liberation, I'm talking about liberation from with, within our own communities. And to pull off that conversation that we were just having about about trauma, um, I really do think that our our liberation is. It, it, it's going to come from within, and I, I certainly mean that like internally and individually, but it's going to come from within our own communities and us building coalitions together with folks that, that share our experiences and folks that don't have our experiences. And we know this, anybody that is a student of history or of movements, uh, we know that, that building those coalitions is the only way these movements are successful. And so I, I look for, I hope for, true liberation that will come from um, from deep coalitions, from folks who have marginalized identities, and that's just across all all spectrums. Um, and and I think if I, I think if we can accomplish that, then then all the other lofty dreams I have can can fall into place. Um, so, gosh, that sounded profoundly idealistic, but, <laughs> but but that's I guess that's the real hope. <laughs> Ember, thank you so much for being here. It's thank been you, an Josh. honor to sit in conversation with you. This is this this has been such a blessing for my Friday morning. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much.
Amber Hikes is the executive director of LGBT affairs for the mayor's office of Philadelphia. There, she advocates for the most vulnerable populations within the LGBTQ community, specifically youth, elders, transgender people, and people of color. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.